are some obvious places to visit in the United States? What are some of the most obvious places that you want to visit in America? Go ahead. What? Is that John Deere? Sevierville? What is that? Oh, it's in the Smokies. Okay. Saraville. Say it right. Saraville. Okay. <laughs> you Hoosier. Where else do you want to go? Las Vegas. Center. <laughs> Washington, D.C. You're looking for a job? We, we give you one. Ireland. Okay, that's is that in America? She didn't hear the question. What other places in America, Ireland, that you'd want to visit? Obvious places. Grand Canyon. What'd you say? Yellowstone. Niagara Falls. New York, Texas. Somewhere Texas. Quake. Waco, Texas. Wow. Okay. So there are a whole lot of places that we want to go to, but there are also those hole-in-the-wall places. Now, a hole-in-the-wall restaurant's one that no one really knows about, but when you find it, it has got this great food, wonderful atmosphere, and generally good prices. Many people like to go to these tropical places in um, around, like Cancun and the Bahamas, but there is a hole-in-the-wall place you can go in America. Look at the picture up here. I mean, look at that crystal teal-colored blue water. This is Bear Lake, Idaho. Bear Lake, Idaho. This natural freshwater lake straddles the Utah-Idaho border. It is a haven for anyone looking to unplug, have a breath of fresh air, and relax. Gorgeous lake nestled in the mountains there. It's often called the Caribbean of the Rockies because of the teal-bright color of the water. You can go hiking, swimming in the lake, reading on the beach, paddleboarding, enjoy delicious raspberry shakes made with local raspberries. Apparently, they are famous in the area. Um, the weather is incredibly temperate due to its elevation. And so while it's cold in some parts and hot in others, it is just right there. Okay, it's supposed to be one of the best places to go if you're looking for a hole-in-the-wall vacation. Now, who here has ever heard of Bear Lake before today? we got one. One person. People can go their whole lives without knowing about Bear Lake. In fact, a study was shown in Idaho and Utah, over 60% of the people had no idea what was in Bear Lake, which was just within two hours of their drive. For many Christians, the gem in their life uh, that they don't truly know about, the hole-in-the-wall information, is the Bible. It's full of unexpected events, stories, and life lessons. If you've been to church for any sort of time, you've probably heard of Paul. The Apostle Paul is the author of most of the New Testament. Um, he visited more cities and preached the message about Christ more than any other person recorded in Scripture. He is considered to be one of the elites of the faith. He is looked at as the pinnacle of living a life for Christ. And because of that, many times Christians don't see the hole-in-the-wall believers because the Paul outshines them. Now, in the Bible, there are a lot of unexpected events, surprises in the Bible. It's surprising that God saved a man like Saul, 
who became Paul. Think of the surprise to the Israelites who came to the Red Sea with the Egyptians hot in pursuit, and suddenly, surprise, God splits the water for them, and they're able to cross over. Think of how surprising it was to live in Galilee when a man named Jesus suddenly starts turning water to wine and calming storms, healing the sick and raising the dead. There are a lot of surprises in the Bible. Surprise appearance of angels, surprise deliverance, uh, Peter's miraculous surprise prison break, surprise birth. Uh, Sarah gave birth to Isaac at 90 years old. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that? This 89-year-old lady next door to you saying, I have an announcement. I'm having a baby. And you would be thinking, it's time to take her to the nut house. Because that doesn't happen. But surprise, it did. Those were all surprises that people in the Bible experienced. And what's cool is, to me is when I meet surprising people in the Bible, when I'm reading something and God unveils this hole-in-the-wall person and it knocks me down. As we continue to look at various cities and acts, we come to a new person. To a surprise, Apollos. Apollos is one that I've heard about, but I really didn't look much at until this last week. He's mentioned once in Acts 19, and then you never hear hear of him again in the book of Acts. Although he's mentioned seven times in 1 Corinthians and once in Titus, both of which Paul writes about. Though little is written about him in the scriptures, he's an example of, to all of us, a surprising person who pops up time and time again in the book of Acts. And there are several things that are surprising that we need to take hold of. Apollos lived, and this is the city, in distinguished faith. That's the city he lived in. He lived in distinguished faith. And the aspects we're going to look at in Apollos are aspects that we need in our own life. Let's pray. God, we come before you, and Lord, we thank you for your word, and I, God, I thank you for the example, the life lessons that we can see of, of all the people that you impacted and that are recorded so we can learn from. Show us how you moved in Apollos' life and how you want to do the same thing in us. Move us into that same city of distinguished faith. And in Jesus we pray, amen. So we're in Acts 18, look at verse 24 here. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, an eloquent speaker who knew the scriptures well, had arrived in Ephesus from Alexandria in Egypt. Now, there's a whole lot right there to unpackage about um, him. First thing you notice about Apollos is why he lived in distinguished faith. First, Apollos lived in distinguished faith because he was mighty in the scriptures. No one else in scripture was called eloquent in speaking the word of God. He was an eloquent speaker because he knew the scriptures well. Now, people who are mighty in scriptures, let me just say, they're, they're pretty rare. It's always a surprise when I meet one. It was rare in Paul's day for, the book of, um, for all those in the book of Acts. Apollos is the only one described in this way in scripture, and today it's still rare. But what does it mean to a person who is mighty in scriptures? To be mighty in scriptures does not refer to just having a lot of knowledge or facts of the Bible in your head. Your knowledge of the Bible may be extensive and accurate, and yet you can be very ignorant of the spiritual meaning and implications 
you can know a whole lot of information about the Bible and still not be a believer. I've talked with people who read the Bible. They've read it every night. Yet through all their reading, they never come to know Jesus as their Savior. Some people read the Bible for the same reason they read any other book, to fill their head with knowledge and to win arguments. I've known people who have had an extensive knowledge of the facts of the Bible, but they never see truth. They turn away from that. And because of that, people like that, people who lack the truth and the Spirit of God, they're easily swayed to whatever new truth comes along their way, whatever idea seems to be prevalent. Intellectual knowledge of the Scriptures is not enough to be mighty in the Scriptures. Being mighty in the Scriptures involves two things. First, it does involve knowledge, but it can't just be knowledge. Knowledge of the Scriptures is important. That's why we should teach our children. That's why we should know it ourselves, know the stories, the doctrines, the truths that it embodies. And this comes through many things. I mean, Dustin and Tiana in the youth ministry and the, the children's programming, that is all geared to fill knowledge into the head of of our children, Sunday school program, our small groups. It's all to help fill us with knowledge. But knowledge is not enough. That has to have the second thing. Knowledge, and then you also need application. Applying the scriptures to your own life personally. Knowing the facts of scripture is only to be, if all it does is make you puffed up in your knowledge of the Bible, then what are you? Who needs a walking biblical encyclopedia living next to them? One who doesn't even follow what they say. The purpose of Scripture is not primarily to know it, but to obey it and apply it to your life, to live it out in your life. It's not just know it. Knowing isn't the end of itself. The purpose of knowing it is so you can obey it. I can read everything on the topic. I can read all the facts about building a house. I've watched videos on how you build a house properly and, and do all that. Who here would like to, me to build you a house now? I've got a lot of knowledge. So far, two kids raised their hands. Yeah, yeah, I was talking about you. Yes. Okay. It does no good if I know the knowledge and never apply it and start learning it. Joshua 1.8 says, study this book of instruction Continually, Just stop right there. Scripture is telling you, study this book of information, of instructions. How often? Continually. Meditate. Now, if, in case you didn't know what that means, look what it says. Meditate on it day and night so you'll be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and then succeed in all you do. Isn't it funny how so many times we turn that around, we try to prosper and succeed at everything we can do, so then we can start learning Scripture. Let's take care of all of this, so then I can focus on God. Study, meditate consistently, constantly. That's the knowledge part. But look what James 1.22 says, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Now, be doers. I've heard that phrase a lot. But look how the NLT, the New Living Translation, puts it. Don't just listen to God's Word. You must do what it says, otherwise you are fooling yourself. Don't just know it. Actually obey it. Do what the Scriptures say. 
And because of that, we need to follow Apollos' example by living a distinguished faith, living there, by striving to be mighty in the Scriptures, knowing and applying, obeying them in all that we do. Now, it said that he was mighty in the Scriptures, but it also said Apollos was eloquent. I, I think it's just always interesting when you can find somebody who eloquently communicates God's Word. I used to think that eloquence was a gift. You either have it or you don't. I have heard some people get up and, and speak on various topics, and they were not eloquent. Uh, there are many times that I stutter and stumble over words, proving I'm not eloquent. And yet here, Apollos is eloquent. I used to think it was something you were born with, but I've come to realize that I was defining eloquence wrong. Eloquence is not a, the ability to mesmerize with special powers of voice and dictation that I can just woo all of you into a frenzy of giving money or giving your life or doing some action. Eloquence is not just using a certain tone and, and volume and all that of your voice so that you can reach the people. Dave Thomas. Do you know what, who Dave Thomas is? Wendy's, yes. He said, eloquence is influential expression. Um, Charles Spurgeon illustrated eloquence this way. He said, what is eloquence? Eloquence is speaking out from the heart. I'll tell you what I call eloquence in a child. is It is the whole child working itself up to gain its wish and to have its way. There's a pretty thing the child wants. He is very little, but he tries to speak all about it. He does his best to express his longings. He points to what he wants, and he clutches it, and he cries after it. And still, if he does not succeed, then he works himself into an agony of despair or desire. The boy cries all over. Every bit of him pleads, demands, strives. He thinks of nothing but that one thing which his heart is set on. And Charles Spurgeon says, I call that anyone who's ever had a child can immediately relate to that eloquence, right? Where they want that no matter what. Apollos lived in distinguished faith because he was authentic and effective at communicating God's truth. He was authentic and effective, and that's what eloquence is. It's authentic. You may never be a great orator. I, I've heard so many people say, I could never get up on stage and speak. You can't. It's real easy. See? I can do it. There are people who they fear speaking on stage more than they fear death. This isn't permanent. I get to get off the stage. This isn't that scary. But we think that you've got to have it all together, that we've got to have everything just perfect. You've got to say just right. I think I have proven all of those are false. Right? You don't have to be a great orator or sophisticated command of the intricacies of the English language. You don't have to mesmerize through a brilliant articulation of language and gesture. The Christian, you can be eloquent in the Bible if you are heartfelt, effective, persuasive, and you just communicate it. This kind of eloquence depends on something very important. A genuine conviction and excitement about what you're talking about. One of the reasons why many Christians are not eloquent when it comes to God 
is because the message of the gospel has not permeated their inner depths of their hearts. They are not captivated by the presence of God in their lives. We get so wrapped up in this world of our jobs, of our our friends and families, of our community, of our social media, of our entertainment, of our comforts, that we shove God out. And then when somebody comes and asks us questions about God, we have this humdrum style and we're not eloquent. When we do that, we make a very poor salesman of what God means to us and, and what Christianity is. We have this uh, vacuum salesperson come to our house one time and uh, talked us into letting her come in and show us this vacuum and, and this vacuum was going to revolutionize our life and all that. So we got the demonstration, but we didn't buy it because here's the thing. When she showed us it, she really didn't care. She was just going through the motions so she could get a free vacuum, her own. So she really didn't care. She's, I got to show you this. And she shows, well, I, I can't forget, I'm supposed to show you this. Okay, show us that. And, and you know what we thought of it? Might be a good vacuum, but I ain't buying that. She was a very poor salesman of this vacuum. She just went through the motions, and it seemed very fake. I think the key to seeing why Apollos was such an effective communicator is found in verse 25. Look there. He, me and Apollos, had been taught the way of the Lord, and he taught others about Jesus with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. However, he only knew about John's baptism. We were told he was fervent in spirit. He believed in his preaching with every ounce of his believing. He believed in it so much that he got animated, he got passionate, he got authentic about it. He was a good salesman for the faith, and people noticed it. Let me ask you a question. What kind of a salesman are you for Christianity? I heard another person say it this way. If you were put on trial for being a Christian, is there enough evidence to condemn you to that? Or could they throw in reasonable doubt that you're not? Are you stirred up about being saved, consumed by Christ, captivated by the cross, gripped by God, stirred by the scriptures? In other words, are you so wrapped up in Jesus that you can't wait to talk about him? Are you so excited that your witness about what he is to you is authentic and that those who hear you actually see not only what you say, but you live is in congruence and it works together? Would they see that Christ really makes a difference in your life and you really do believe it? And if they just chose Jesus, they could have the same thing. Or is it just something you do on Sunday morning? I fail in this. I fail in this. I read this and I was like, man, I need to be like Apollos. Look what it says, Acts 25. However, he knew only about John's baptism. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching boldly in the synagogue, they took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. They already said that he knew the scriptures accurately. But he was deficient in his understanding of Christ and grace. He only knew of the baptism of John. He was saved under the Old Testament economy, looking forward by faith to the coming Messiah because 
John the Baptist was still under the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and this is where Apollos was really growing in it, but he didn't realize that the Lamb of God, that the Lamb of God the Jews awaited, the Son of God, how he atoned for the sins on the cross, how this Jesus had to place, he needed to place his life into him. So what did Apollos do? Did he try to reason his way up? Priscilla and Aquila came and said, hey, we need to teach you something a little bit more. And did he say, whoa, I'm eloquent, I'm mighty in Scripture, you sit down and learn from me. No, because he lived in distinguished faith. And because he lived there, Apollos was teachable. Apollos was humble enough to be teachable. He was able to learn something that didn't quite match up with what he'd been taught. He wasn't stuck in the time warp and say, well, this is what I've been taught. It's set in stone. There's no more you can teach me. The way we did it, the way we learned it, that's it. He wasn't sitting there saying, well, my grandpa taught me this. My daddy taught me this. So therefore, that's all I'm going to do. And I say that because I've heard people say that in the church. This is what my daddy taught me. Well, your daddy was wrong. That's true. And we need to do this. What did Apollos do? He was teachable. Being teachable requires humility. And that's what's so surprising about Apollos. Apollos was very smart. He was educated. He was sharp, eloquent. It said he spoke boldly, passionately. One who knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. Who knew how to apply the knowledge that he had gained into his life and give that to other people. One who stood before people. He was looked up to. He was well respected. Yet when a tent maker couple. The equivalent of blue collar workers. Explained to him. Hey. We need to teach you a little bit more. This college professor type person looked at these people, these blue collars, and said, okay, teach me. Apollos wasn't too high and mighty that he couldn't learn from someone else. I see two applications for our lives in this, in this surprising man. First, I see an application to the hearers of preachers. So this one's all for you. Though Aquila and Priscilla knew much more of the things of the Lord than Apollos, they still supported his ministry. They didn't think they were so smart that they couldn't learn under him and say, we just need to go somewhere else because, you know, he's wrong. Uh, They didn't go elsewhere saying we're just not being fed. They were there to encourage Apollos as they were to learn from him. They didn't scoff at his lack of understanding of some key pieces of the puzzle. When they saw he was missing that piece, they didn't correct him publicly to show off their own Bible knowledge. Rather, they gently showed him in private with their own humility. I see this, how enlightened and mature believers can be a blessing to the young and experienced um, preachers by following Priscilla and Aquila's example. I'm not saying you guys right now did this. Years ago, when I'd get up and preach, I'd have, People ready to shake my hand, tell me what I did wrong, and then leave. And, and there was a few times, I, I want to be honest, I wanted to hold their hand a little longer and trip them as they fell. I just wanted to. It was very condescending. 
so that that's for you guys. But I also see an application to preachers and other leaders in the church. This eloquent young man who had just come from the University of Alexandria was not above learning from other people, even tent makers. Leadership in the church cannot claim infallibility. One thing I've learned over my years in ministry is that some of the most profound truths I've ever heard come from everyday people, kind of like farmers. I've heard some great truths from people who didn't have degrees. Incredible insights from the common people. God help all the leaders to have a teachable spirit. Yeah, I'm up here on stage, but we are all in this to teach and uphold one another in the greater, deeper truths. And so I'm going to tell you right now, if you're sitting down in this room, okay, that's all of you, and God has given you a truth, you better teach me. I need you to teach me so that I can grow in my faith. And to everybody standing up, be humble enough to experience and accept it. All right, let's move on. In verse 27, Apollos had been thinking about going to Achaia, and the brothers and sisters in Ephesus encouraged him to go. They wrote to the believers in Achaia, asking them to welcome him. When he arrived there, he proved to be of great benefit to those who, by God's grace, had believed. He refuted the Jews with powerful arguments in public debate using the scriptures. He explained to them that Jesus was the Messiah. Once Apollos got the full knowledge of Jesus, he gave his life into complete service to Jesus. He gave his life to doing that. He was available to God. He didn't sit in the pew, so to speak. He used his gifts and abilities to advance the kingdom of God. I know God. I know him more intimately. I've learned so much more about him. Now it's time to go tell everybody else. That's what he was saying. He lived in distinguished faith because he was available for service. He didn't think that he had learned it, and now it's his time to sit. Note the way God used him. Apollos was a benefit to the new believers, it said. He built up and he helped these baby Christians. He was like Barnabas, the encourager, to Paul. Paul would not have become Paul without Barnabas tootling him, encouraging him, being with him. He wouldn't have been. But God called Barnabas, who stood up and said, I'm available. Apollos, God called him, and he stood up, and he is available. He's a blessing wherever he went, not whenever, but wherever he went. There are always some Christians who are young in faith around whom you can encourage and teach. I know people right now in this room that, man, I just don't know what I can teach them. Show them you're available. Show them that you're available. That you'll be there with him. Uh, earlier, we, I was just talking about the pork and pine, that we've got, we want more people. There are some young guys, young boys in this church who want to do this. And they don't have the opportunity. So who's going to be available to say, I, I've got the tools, I've got the time, why don't you come over? I'm not a woodworker. I'm trying to learn. I needed to learn from somebody. So you know what I did? I went over to a guy's garage who lives just across the street, and he showed me how to use some of the tools that he has. He was available. He was available, and I learned from him, and it showed he's a lot like Apollos. There are always some Christians who are young in the faith that need that. You can teach them who are not just young in faith, but could actually be physically young, like 
teaching the kids weekly in our Sunday school or in the nursery in our junior church. Be available to be available to them. You could use your gift. Maybe it's not teaching or discipling young believers, but there's other places to serve to advance the kingdom. Simple things that require no training. Do you know what it takes training-wise to be a greeter in the church? Brush your teeth. Because you're going to be talking. We don't want to smell the coffee. A smile. Let's see, can everybody smile? Some of you aren't smiling. I'll call you by name if you don't. Okay. And you say, welcome. did that. You, you could be, oh, it's John, I should have known. You could be a greeter. Um, you could prepare meals for new mothers. By the way, there's a meal train coming up for a brand new mom. Um, you could get meal trains for those who are sick or using hospitality to invite people in your home where you can share your faith and nurture them and be authentic for them. God has placed you in this church for a purpose. Not only that, he has placed within you certain gifts, talents, knowledge, and experiences that he wants you to use in this place for each other here. God wants you to use these gifts, your abilities to serve him and being available for other people. Second, Apollos was in the business of persuading people to come to Christ. He was what called the Ministry of Reconciliation, a ministry we should all be involved in. You may not be able to preach behind a pulpit, but every one of us should be involved in the Ministry of Reconciliation. Everyone should be able to tell others about Christ and use your life example as a way that says, you need Jesus too. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know how to talk about that. And I've said this repeatedly. Grandmas, where did you learn to talk about your grandkids? You just open your mouth because you love them. You can't get enough of them. And you want to tell everybody in the world how you have the best grandkids. It's just what it is. Do you realize that without Christ you're going to hell? Do you realize no matter how good of a person you are, you fall miles short of the standard of purity that God demands for you to enter into heaven. Do you realize that you're going to hell without Christ? I was going there too. But then somebody talked to me about this guy, Jesus. And he showed me how instead of being this uh, demeaning, mad, arrogant judge waiting to pound a gavel and send me to hell, that he was one who took the pounding in his, in his hands so that I didn't have to go there. He's the one who said, why don't you try getting to know him? You know, I never went to class for that. The guy who taught me didn't go to class for that. If you have been saved, shouldn't we be telling others? That's, that's what it means to be a politician. That's the ministry of reconciliation. I was going to hell. But God saved me. Let me show you what he did. And you don't have to know all the answers. There are people, well, I don't know what the scripture says. Well, we read earlier, meditate on it day and night, study it. That's how you're going to learn. But also in Acts it says, don't worry about what you're going to say because God will give you the words when you are under trial and tested. And then also it is very easy to say. They ask you a question and you know what you can say? 
I don't know. Let me go find out. I'll get back to you in three days. That's easy. You don't have to have the answers right away. I don't think Apollos did all the time because he studied, he kept studying, which made him learn. This is what it means to live distinguished faith. What might the Lord be speaking to you right now about the life of Apollos this morning? Are you mighty in the scriptures or are you spiritually weak? Are you a student of the word daily? Are you applying what you've learned from God's word daily? Don't just read it for knowledge. Rather say, God, what do you want me to do in obedience? You've given me this word. Now what do I do with it? Ask him. James says, ask for the knowledge and he'll give it to you. Second, are you wrapped up in Jesus that when you speak of him, people sense a conviction and reality of what you say? When you talk about Jesus, do people realize you know him? That you know him so well? Obviously, she knows her grandkids. She spoke up right away. There's no doubt she knows her grandkids. Can't we be the same way about Jesus? That I know him, and after talking to me, people will know that? Are you convinced or a bad salesman of our Savior? And then are you teachable or are you haughty, a know-it-all? We need to encourage the truth. Encourage the truth that God wants us all to live in distinguished faith, that we can learn something, no matter how great we might think, no matter how old we are in the faith, that we can all learn. And then finally, are you available? Are you available for God to say, I need you to go somewhere? If God were to say, I need you, and he called you by name to go do something, would you say, I'm right here, send me on my way? God called Abraham, he says, I'm going to move you. And Abraham packed up, he didn't know where he's going. But he packed up. God is calling every one of us to walk out and to live in distinguished faith. And are we available to do that? It's, it's time we actually not came to church, but we lived the church. We're going to go into a time of invitation. And as we come to this, I want you to ask, answer the question that's on the screen. Are you living in distinguished faith? Are you living in a faith that people call authentic, exciting, passionate? Or is it just something you do? Let your answer be reflected in how we sing this song to our God. Let's stand and let's meet him in the in the kingdom as we sing.